Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Welcome back to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize the topic of mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance for anyone who needs a mental health boost. To provide mental health resources, Maybelline New York will make a monetary donation to mental health organizations in conjunction with each episode. Today, I'm joined by writer, entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, and philanthropic innovator, Rachel Cargill. She sits down with us today to discuss and focus specifically on her experiences with anxiety, depression, and her anti-racism work. Welcome, Rachel. I'm so happy to talk to you today. I'm so happy to talk to you any day, but especially today. I'm happy to see you. (laughs) Yes, what a way to kick off the week. So Rachel Cargill, you are a writer, entrepreneur, a nonprofit founder. You do it all. What does your day-to-day work life look like? I have been getting into some rhythms and I've even been calling them like rituals to try to make how I show up in the world, particularly as it pertains to work, feel less like something outside of me and more like just part of the rhythm of my life. I've been working really hard to give myself time each morning to really just be in relationship with myself, <laughs> like to breathe, to, to be in relationship with my body, to stretch, to be in relationship with my d- desires, like the cappuccino that I really love and want to really like go for it and have it and sit and enjoy it. Doing frivolous things like I do a crossword puzzle each morning, just allowing myself to ease into the day instead of waking up to be productive and then go to bed and try to find rest from that productivity. But part of life is productivity as well in in the ways that I have to show up for this work. So I've been putting some real boundaries around that. Even within my company, we don't have meetings on Fridays. When we recognize in someone's schedule that they have a full day of Zoom meetings, you know, we'll go through and say, okay, let's cut out a few of them for myself as well. So I've been trying to get into a rhythm of doing work as it feels good and as it feels like it's pouring out of me and then giving myself rest when I don't, when it doesn't feel that way. But A lot of my day-to-day of working looks like this balance of rest and pouring into the work, rest and pouring into the work. I like the fact that I can't say a normal routine because that wouldn't be true. (laughs) That one, that wouldn't be true. But also I've been getting out of this feeling that it has to look the same way every day because I'm not the same every day. And so I can show up best when I kind of give myself the space for that. I can totally relate about the morning routine, like my morning routine is so important to me. I'm a very early riser. Like I have no problems waking up, but like, I want that time for myself. Like I don't want to be bombarded with emails and worrying about, you know, everything I have to do that day. It's so important for me to like take that time. I'm a huge breakfast person. Gotta get my breakfast in and just, as you said, like ease into the day. 
And, you know, I've been spending the summer in London, so I feel like I can actually do that tenfold now because when I wake up, I'm so much farther ahead of New York, so I'm not getting all the email pings constantly. It's like I can make it to noon and no one has bothered me. So I totally relate. So now today's episode is all about anxiety. So let's jump right in. What has been your firsthand experience with anxiety in your life? And like, when did you actually realize you had anxiety? Ooh, you know, anxiety wasn't really a word that was super used around me when I was younger. So it wasn't at the tip of my tongue to say, I feel anxious or I'm experiencing anxiety. I think certainly when I became an adult and was open to the world of social media where I was getting a lot of information that I would have never gotten from inside my home or my neighborhood, you know, social media opens up influence (laughs) from different spaces. And so when I was learning about more conversations about mental health, realities of anxiety, the symptoms of anxiety really became clear to me. And I was able to associate them with some of my own experiences. And I think that the most anxious I've ever been in my life is now. The anxiety that I'm experiencing in the world are these days as opposed to when I was younger. So while I don't, while I don't remember the first time I heard or experienced it, I certainly can say that in hindsight, I'm witnessing the progression of both the anxiety and the tools I have to deal with it, the language I have to describe it, the, you know, the tool bag I've been able to build to go through life with it. But particularly around the pandemic and around all of the mass shootings happening, my anxiety out in public is, has skyrocketed. And that's something that I've certainly had to come up and face is this anxiety around doing very normal things like going to the grocery store or getting on the subway. Absolutely. Obviously have to bring in the fact that mental health is also something that within the Black community, we do not talk about enough. And I know from my own experience, I first started having anxiety at 13. And that was something like completely foreign to my parents. And luckily, like through my school and guidance counselor, like guiding us, you know, my parents were open to getting me a therapist and doing all of that. But sometimes it's still even a struggle to have these kinds of conversations with my parents about like what it's like for me to have anxiety and how much it colors like how I move throughout the day. When I was in middle school, going into high school, I actually started therapy when I was younger because my father passed away when I was around 11 and my mother was seeing a lot of the depression show up. Anxiety wasn't a conversation on the table, but depression certainly was. So I had a pretty good relationship with mental health and mental health care because my mother had been intentional on putting me into therapy to deal with feelings that I had around my father passing. But she certainly didn't give me space to feel anxiety outside. There had to be an excuse for why I felt away. So my father dying was a good enough, like, oh, okay, she's sad. Her father passed away. Let me make sure that she has the support around that. But if I was to tell my mother, you know, I don't think I could go to this school event today because it's my body is feeling away about it or my mind is just going in loops about it. I don't think I would have been given the space to be cared for or to 
um, be seen as for it to be seen as valid. So this conversation that you're having around parents, particularly black families of there has to be a, a valid excuse to them for you to be feeling away certainly folds into this conversation of mental health. Cause something like anxiety doesn't have a lot of space within the home for a reason why you're not doing what you're supposed to do or what it's needed of you. Right. Or it needs to almost feel like super extreme for someone rock bottom. Yeah. <laughs> rock bottom or nothing. Yeah. You know, you can't just, it can't just be like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm having some worries. Like you almost have to be having like a full blown tantrum to really get the care that you need. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've, I really have been thinking about this so much because this idea of, and we'll stay in this conversation of black families and black children, African-American from my own experience in particular, is this kind of space of that goes back to our thoughts and our feelings in enslavement that, you know, if you're acting out, it it could lead to death. If you're, you know, crying too much and it could be heard, then we could be getting in trouble. And so there's this like super intense compartmentalizing of ourselves so that we are not taking up too much space, which could lead to being in trouble, a lynching. And even it looks like that same way now in many, many ways. And so I think it's a deep generational work to allow ourselves to feel our feelings and to allow ourselves to share our feelings with each other, whether it's from children in our lives or even older people in our lives who never had the chance to feel feelings. And now we have to make space for that. It's really a deep generational work that shows up across generations and in our immediate households. Absolutely. And talk to me a little bit about what it was like having depression after your father passed. You know, was this something that you could like talk openly about with like your friends or at school? Well, I'll tell you one story from that time. My father passed, like I said, I was 11. And the first person I called was a girl named Erin. She was my really good friend at the time. And a year later, almost a year to the day later, her father passed. And I thought I had like passed on some type of curse to her. Like in my little brain, I was like, oh no, Erin was the first person I called when my dad died. Maybe there was some sort of transfer of energy in that space. And so I had a lot going on in my mind around my father passing anyways, that only existed in the brain of a 11 year old, but also the normal feelings that come up with losing a parent. But I wanted to tell that story and then jump to the now, because I honestly think that I am just now being able to process and grieve so much of my life at that time. So much of the things that were going on at that time. I say that because Recently, my partner was asking me a question and she was saying, Rachel, when you talk in your writing about your father, you say that your father was the most important person in your world. He, he like gave you all of the love and affirmation you needed. And then you say when he passed, you were fine. And that like you got through it and you went to therapy and it was that she goes, Rachel, that, that can't be true. Like those both can't be true, that he was the most important person in your world. And when he passed away, you were fine. There's something there. So this is literally just a few months ago. I go to my mother and I say, tell me what I was like in those months after dad died. Like, tell me what I was like. And my mom told me something that I was very unaware of. She said, Rachel, after your father passed, I had to take you to the emergency room at least once a week for like six months because you were complaining of stomach pain 
in a very intensive way, as we said, it has to be a death situation for your parents to really make some moves. So it, I had to have been really in pain for my mother to take me to the emergency room so many times. And she said that I was complaining of a stomach pain that the doctors couldn't find any rational reason for, but that I was clearly in pain. And I was like, oh, one, that makes so much sense because to this day, my stomach is my bodily indicator of emotion. And two, I don't, I remember going to the hospital when I was four or five. The fact that I don't remember a constant hospital visit at 11. Yeah. What? You've really suppressed that. Yes. Like, wow. And this, and and I just had this realization literally months ago, Chrissy. So I am in this moment going through a huge wave of emotions and understandings. And like, my eyes are just opening to so many ways that I wasn't given the space or my body just protected me from feeling so many feelings that were going on at that time. And I know obviously the sadness, the depression, the anxiety all were a part of what was going on at that time. And I'm feeling them in many ways again now, as I have kind of the space and the support of my therapists and the support of people around me to help me move through healing from these things. But yeah, I'm getting those waves again. My like my heart's breaking for a little Rachel because I also the stomach issues that I lived that life as well throughout, you know, my teenage years struggling with anxiety, always manifesting through my stomach. Yeah. And it's just so crazy how much our brains and our stomachs are connected. You know, I was reading actually I was listening to a podcast called For the Wild and they had a they had a guest on who was discussing how in Western culture, we give so much weight to our mind's perception of the world and we dismiss how our body experiences and perceives the world and how it's taking in and giving information. And I listened to that podcast not long after I heard this thing from my mother about my stomach being an issue after my father passed. And I said, you know, what if my mom would have trusted that my body was telling her what I needed instead of waiting for the doctors to give a diagnosis that would rationalize something in her mind to say, okay, this is what's happening. Instead of saying her body is telling me what she needs instead of a doctor telling me what she needs. And that has really been a huge part of the healing journey that I'm on right now to say, where else can I pull truth from myself that isn't just resting in knowledge or intellect? What has my body told me? What has my environment told me? You know, like how messy or clean have I been able to keep my home? Like, what is that telling me about how I'm feeling in my mind or in my body? How are my relationships telling me, you know, how are my feelings and how they're relating to other people telling me about how well I am in the world? So I I love this conversation of how our mind is connected to our body because our body is also a source of information and it's also a source of direction that we have to pay more attention to and that Western culture has completely convinced us to dismiss as a valid and valuable form of communication with ourselves. Absolutely. And I love reading about this stuff. I actually started reading the mind-gut connection a couple months ago. I haven't finished it, but you know, it's really, really fascinating. In times of extreme stress or anxiety, what are some methods of self-soothing that you have found most effective? I cry a lot. (laughs) I have found 
that when I cry and I let go of the energy, (laughs) it really helps me move through a day or an event or whatever. (laughs) Like I lately I've been like, okay, I did my cry for the day. I've released this energy that is bottled up in my body and I can go on about my day. That's been one of them is like giving myself the space to cry if I need to cry, which as a child, I wasn't always given. It was you know, be quiet. We're going into this place. So I think one of the ways that I am reparenting myself, which is a soothing mechanism is giving myself the space to cry. If I feel like I'm going to cry, I'm working on not holding back tears if they're coming. Another thing is I want to say yoga because I have been using yoga methods and you know, yoga flows, but it's really being in relationship with my body. And if I realize that when I'm really working through, sometimes after therapy sessions, when I really work through an issue, there's a part of my body that desperately needs to be stretched. And so I do that. So I, I pad time around my therapy session to stretch the part of my body that might need it after a session. So a lot of times it's in my hips. A lot of times it's in my shoulders. A lot of times it's in my toes oddly, like I want to stretch my toes. And so I have invested in like a bolster and blocks and like a particular mat because I want to have the things that I need around me to stretch and move my body after a session. And even just like, I have a pillow that I love that I'll sometimes just like hug for like a half an hour. And it really self-soothes me to have like, I want to say skin to skin, but it's like skin to cotton pillow. (laughs) hug that I need and just closing my eyes. (laughs) Sometimes it just feels good to just be with myself in my body, in my own world and being able to close my eyes and not, you know, we're always looking at screens. We're always perceiving the world around us through our eyes. And so I kind of like to rest them and give my body a chance to be in conversation with the world in other ways outside of what I'm seeing. And that has been a bit of a meditative practice to soothe myself when things are getting, and that's something that can be done anywhere. Breathing, box breathing has been so helpful. Tapping has been so helpful. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with tapping. I know it's wild how good it feels. It's crazy. (laughs) It really is. I did it for the first time a couple months ago with a healer I work with all the time. And it really blew my mind. I was like having a going through a period of just like intense anxiety and the way that it just moves the energy in your body, like literally for those who don't know by, you know, tapping certain pressure points around your face, your chest, it's really transformative. Yeah. And I think that things like tapping or pressure points, you know, like pressing onto pressure points in your body, reading about ways that other cultures have dealt with wellness has also been a huge Mm-hmm. part of lessening my anxiety because I know that there's tools. I know that there's answers. I know that I'm not the only one who's going through it. I know that this has been a thing for millennia. And so really taking time to learn and understand my body through a different lens than white Western culture has really opened up the doors for me to be well with myself without feeling like I'm spiraling on an everyday basis. I love your focus on really, you know, tapping into what's going on in your body. It's so important. And like our bodies really do give us so much information about what is going on in our heads. And it's where we are all day, every day. Like I can't. Yeah. It's like we we give more maintenance to our homes or our cars or, 
you know, than the actual our clothing and the actual body that we're living in. And this is new for me. This is not a concept that I've been living with. So I don't want it to sound like this is like some old wisdom that I've been with this whole time. This is all very new one for me to want to be in relationship with my body for not, for me not to feel like my body's just this thing that's ruining my life. You know, I'm bigger. So it's like, Oh, if my body would just act right, if my body would just get itself together, I could live in the world better. This is the first time I'm not dismissing my body as something that is in the way of how I'm living, but my body is now an integral part to how I'm living. And that has completely changed how I move through the world, how I talk to myself in my head, and even how I eat, how I move my body. It's not a means to an end of looking better or being able to say that I'm fit or being able to fit into a certain cloak. It's literally just the everyday relationship that I have with this vessel that I am with until the end of time. <laughs> and that sounds very liberating. For sure. For sure. Because we have, it's ours to control. It's not society's to tell us whether it's good or not. It's not my mother's to tell me whether it's good or not. It's not my partner's to tell me whether it's good or not. It is what it is. And I'm in relationship with it. So there's, there's not much to fight against when I'm able to say, you know, this is mine and it's something that I care about and that I put time into and how I am in the world is how I am in the world. And I'm doing my best. So now In 2018, you founded Loveland Foundation, a nonprofit offering free therapy to Black women and girls. I love this organization so much. I I donate to it very often. So I would love to know how did the idea initially come about? Yeah. So the Loveland Foundation is the foundation component to the Loveland Group, which is the company that I own as well. But the foundation came first in the way that in 2000, as you said, in 2018, I was attending Columbia University and part of the student package was this access to therapy. And so I had been taking advantage of it and going to this black woman therapist that they had on campus. And during that day, a really powerful session that when I walked away from it, I was just feeling incredibly grateful. And when I feel incredibly grateful, usually the next feeling is how can I share with other people this feeling, whether it's, I want to tell people about it, or I want to invite them into the space to have this opportunity is what I felt like it was an opportunity to be more conscious of myself, more conscious of the world around me and really heal through some things that I hadn't had the chance to. So after that session that day, I had walked out, I was still a nanny at the time. And I went to go grab the little girl I was nannying from whatever after school program she was a part of that day. And I was just thinking on my way there that I wanted every black woman to have a chance to go to therapy. If to just start making considerations of healing of self-worth and self-care that can't always come from just thinking about it ourselves. It's that professional, it's that unbiased third party that can give us perspective that we don't have, perspective and information that we don't have for ourselves. And so that day after I think I like dropped off at tennis and then I sat at a Starbucks and I started to go fund me that day. And I said, I want to start raising money to help Black women and girls have access to therapy. And in my mind, one, I had never been in the nonprofit world. So I didn't even know how it worked. I was, I always called, I had this like black market nonprofit for a little bit because I was like, I'm collecting money. And I thought I was just going to call 
and pay people's therapy bills. That's what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> I had this idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I just knew I wanted to get, do something and I got started. Luckily in a, in very short order, a wonderful woman named Charlene Kemmler, who was a philanthropic advisor. She is a philanthropic advisor came and she ran into me at a co-working space. And she said, Rachel, I love your work. I see this therapy fund that you've started. Do you need support? And I was like, yes, I do need support. And she came in, helped get it. It's 501c3 status. We, she is now the CEO of the foundation. We have a wonderful staff of all black women who are working in the foundation. And it has been an incredible opportunity to pass on this opportunity of wellness that I felt that I had by attending university and that everyone doesn't get access to. And they certainly don't get access to a black therapist or a queer therapist that might reflect their experience in the world. So once we got kind of the structure of the organization set up, we began partnering with listservs of black and queer therapists who would be able to serve these people who were seeking therapy. And we've been able to partner with really incredible therapy groups and therapy lists who of therapists who really sit in and recognize the ways that someone's intersectionality in the world needs to be present within a therapy session. A lot of times, you know, black people feel like they have to go in and spend half of their session explaining the black experience before they can even get in to the trauma that they're trying to work through. And I thought that was really important to try to bring together the participants who are getting therapy with therapists who might reflect their experience in the world and give them just a little bit of that extra layer of safe space to go through a session. It's been a really beautiful and powerful journey since the foundation started. I love it. And yeah. And I think that's really important to, especially as black people to have therapists who can understand our point of view and where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. So now what positive impacts have you seen as a result of starting this foundation? One of the very clear aspects of starting the organization is that it's wonderful to be part of pushing the conversation of therapy being accessible, being a thing that people should move towards, that they should invest in, not as a rock bottom option, but just as an ongoing maintenance of our wellness, of our mental health, of the story we're telling ourselves in our head about the world and our place in it. So being part of the conversation to push us out of a stigma and into a everyday invitation to care for our mental wellness is certainly one of the best parts of starting the organization. We are coming up on a hundred thousand hours of therapy being had by our participants. So just knowing that people are sitting in rooms or on Zooms with their therapist for almost a hundred hours of talking through their joys and their hard times and their memories and their hopes is just a beautiful thought just to think about all those hours of people seeking healing. I also think that the foundation is kind of changing the game in the world of philanthropy itself. We are very intentional in the way that we raise money and in the money that comes into us. You know, there's big brands who come and say, we want to donate to the Loveland Foundation. And they kind of have this expectation for a 
gold star that they are ready to put on social media that they donated or they're ready to be able to say that they're part of this work when they're not really doing work for black people in other spaces. And so we do a lot of research into who is giving to us. We don't just let anyone donate to us. And that has been really powerful in reminding the world, particularly the white world of philanthropy, that doing anti-racism work or doing work to support the black community is not just self-help work for the white world. It's not just a self-help opportunity for white people to say, well, I want to be better in the world, so I will give to black people. But it should be, you know, there is an expectation and a standard for us to care for each other and a responsibility to hold ourselves accountable for how we show up in the world in general. So I think that another really powerful part of the foundation is the way that Charlene and the team are kind of creating this expectation of true community and true commitment that the philanthropy world hasn't seen. Right. And just the everyday of like me going to a coffee shop and the barista telling me that they just finished all of their therapy sessions and how it's been able to shift their day to day and how they're able to manage. And also, you know, there's one of the really special things about the therapy fund is that the application has no hoops to jump through in order to get help in the way that other things look, particularly for Black poor people to say, share with us your trauma. The harder your life is, the more you deserve this. Right. The only way you're going to get this, there's like a weird income bracket to say, if you're, you can only get support if you're making this much money, like more than this much, but less than this much. And I really wanted to break down those barriers and I wanted something different for the Loveland Foundation. And so we do not have any of those types of hoops to jump through. And what that has meant is that, you know, a therapist who hasn't been able to afford therapy has been able to come in and get therapy. I mean, you're familiar, especially with Caribbean culture and Black Caribbean culture, a doctor who's making six figures is probably sending a good chunk of that back home to his family who worked so hard to get him into medical school to become a doctor. So if I'm only basing your need for help on how much money you're bringing in, that's not accounting for the truth of why you probably need therapy because you've gotten to this place where everyone's expecting you to send money home and you're trying to get your own place, you know? So being able to skirt those Western expectations of who deserves what has been really powerful in the foundation because we understand that it looks different for different people. And so you being a Black woman, a Black gender expansive person is the only qualification necessary for you to deserve the assistance that we're providing. And I I love that. We're moving in a lot of really powerful ways towards supporting the therapist as well. So in the background, this isn't necessarily a public thing that we talk about much, but in the background, we're giving group therapy sessions to our therapist. We're giving support and added training for free to our therapist. So we are kind of supporting the whole range of this experience of Black people getting the mental health support that they need. I love that because also, you know, I've heard with a lot of these newer like online therapy services, it actually creates a lot of work and, and challenges for the therapists themselves. Like they do need support in this, especially if they are taking on like a very high volume of clients. So I love that you also factor that into into this work. Shifting to your anti-racism work, what, how has that affected your anxiety? Because as we know, doing anti-racism work on social media can be really 
exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I saw a huge expansion in my anxiety when I started doing anti-racism work on social media, mostly because it's this wild concoction of the anxiety that social media brings you anyways, the notifications that are popping up, your feelings about how many likes and comments are happening, consideration of who's looking at you or who's not paying attention to you. And then the anxiety of doing anti-racism work where you're trying to approach a conversation that literally has your life at stake while meeting the societal expectations of the eloquence of your language, the accessibility of, you know, your words, the expectation for you to maintain a a certain tone or certain energy in the room. And so it certainly created a very particular type of anxiety in me that I am still healing from. And when I say healing from, I'm talking about the time between 2017 to the end of 2020, when I was really in the thick of my work, that was an ongoing everyday expectation for me to rise to a level of rage, for me to rise to a level of back and forth communication. For me to rise to a level of all knowingness, to know every race, racial issue that's going on and to speak to it and not just to speak to it, but to be enraged by it. And not only to be enraged by it, but to be in communication with those who want to dismiss how upset you are. So it did a lot of weathering on my nervous system the years between 2017 and 2020. But I also want to bring up one thing that I don't think has been talked about as much as I wish it would have is the very intense experience of so many Black people, organizations, and businesses that had extreme growth during the summer of 2020 due to this wave of white people wanting to come into the conversation of anti-racism all of a sudden with a deep urgency that created a bit of friction and the way that I can certainly speak for myself and many other people, the height of our writing careers or business success correlated with deep grieving in the murder of so many Black people, particularly George Floyd and the uprisings that were happening in 2020. That is a mental health concern. (laughs) It's something that, that exists in the world of mental health because there's a deep grief on top of a deep gratefulness (laughs) that just doesn't always, the puzzle pieces don't always fit. And so I think that this will hopefully be a conversation in years to come about how so many of the people who were doing anti-racism work and who were getting book deals and who were selling their products out and who were having this uptick in donations that they might not have been ready to manage. And the reason why they weren't ready to manage it is because resources are traditionally not available to these people anyways. So it's this really wild double experience of having a huge wave of success happen at the same time as a huge wave of grief. And I can certainly say that I'm still recovering from that. And I know many, many people are in many, many ways. Absolutely. I know the summer of 2020 was definitely unlike anything most of us have experienced. And you bring up such a valid point about, you know, so many of us getting a lot of attention at the same time that like, there was a lot of difficult stuff that we were trying to process on top of then also like teaching people about racism and, 
and all that was expected of us. And it's important to like actually stop and think about all of that and, and all those feelings that were coming up. Yeah. And even, you know, I'm thinking about organizations. Luckily, the Loveland Foundation had such great leadership and had such a great team that we were able to really work with all of the donations that were coming in for us. But there are some organizations who were crumbling (laughs) under the fact that people were trying to give, give, give so that they could feel better about whatever it was, but they didn't have the resources to be able to manage the donations and be able to give them out. Or even the writers who were getting all these opportunities to write op-eds or to teach in ways. And they're like feeling bad because they're turning down things while they're trying to grieve and also trying to make a living. And I think it was just a very particular ecosystem for Black educators, Black people who work in the anti-racism world that I hope will really be looked into in later years. And you've been quite vocal about taking legit breaks from social media. How do you know when it's time for yourself to step back? One thing about the way that my social media has shifted and just my work in general, my anti-racism work in general, is that I have decided, and it has been crucial to my survival, that my anti-racism work can look different than what people have come to expect from me. And when I say what people have come to expect from me, I mean, it was the thing that I was doing from 2017 to 2020. And it was this kind of online educating and this accessibility and availability to be in conversation with those who were learning from me, which was often the white people who were in my readership or part of the community. And that was very exhausting in ways that are obvious. And I decided what other ways can this work look? And so I feel very grateful that I had the opportunity to do something like start the Loveland Foundation because that is my work. You know, I opened a bookstore in 2020 and we have no cis white men on the shelves. We are constantly centering and highlighting black, queer, marginalized voices. And that is part of my anti-racism work as well. So I had to really do a big reimagining of what it meant to be part of the struggle and to do work that didn't completely demolish me. Another thought that I had to sit with is, you know, I'm not the only, it's obvious, but I'm not the only one doing this work that I have such a huge team. I have such a huge landscape of comrades, of people who are also doing this work that I know and who I don't know, who I can take a break because there's other people here. So we can like, but sometimes it, it helps mentally to call a friend and be like, girl, I'm so tired. I'm about to go off social media. Remind me that you're there. (laughs) Like, remind me that you are there too. And she'll be like, okay, I'm here. I'll let you know when I tap out. So I'll know that you're there too. And so it's this ebb and flow of community that also allows me. Buddy system. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That that gives me the space to like step back and say, okay, I don't have to save the world. (laughs) Me as an individual person, which everyone feels in one way or another. And so it's being real with myself and saying, if I do this in a way that's going to completely exhaust me, I won't be able to do anything. So I need to find places where sometimes it's more involved and sometimes it's not. And I'm looking forward to the ebb and flow of it. I, right now I'm certainly in a, you know, I'm in an ebb of like, I'm focusing more on my writing. I'm focusing more on my foundation and on my companies and the ways that they show up in the world. And I'm not so much having public conversation about anti-racism, but it could come up again and I might have something else to say and I might have another way that I'm involved, but 
I'm allowing there to be nuance in this work and I'm allowing there to be ebb and flow in it. Yeah, absolutely. You have an upcoming book with Penguin Random House centering around the reimagining of womanhood, solidarity and self and how we are in relationship with ourselves and one another. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired this book? Yeah. Well, you know, I signed this book deal years ago. I think maybe when me and you first met (laughs) while years and years ago, I remember hearing about it. Yes. And one of the things I love most about this book is the journey it's taken to get to it because I signed it back in 2018. I believe it was intended to be a educate like a anti-racism book that educated. And that's the space I was in. That's the world we were in. And that was before 2020, before there was this, collective consciousness about what we were doing in terms of race. And then 2020 happened and so many incredible writers came out with books that spoke to exactly the things that I had planned on putting into my book. And I said, you know, I don't think I need to harp on what has been said in really beautiful ways by many wonderful authors, particularly black women who were doing such good work in the anti-racism world. I also had changed a ton. I was not the same person today that I was in 2018 when I signed the book. And so I had to keep telling my publisher, wait, I have to change something. Wait, I have to add a little bit more into it because none of this is going to make sense when it hits the shelves, when (laughs) people know who I am today and they're reading something that I wrote at that time. So there was a lot of tears back and forth, anxiety about ensuring that this book really showed who I am when it hits the shelves, as opposed to who I was when everyone was wanting an anti-racism book from me. And so now the book is really special in the way that it is like a fingerprint of who I am today. It's a memoir. It's much more of a memoir than it is an education book as it had originally been. And what it does is that it goes through various aspects of my life. So, you know, reimagining relationships, reimagining education, reimagining philanthropy, reimagining work. And it goes through all of these aspects of my life, the ways that I've reimagined it based on the way that I needed to because of the anti-racism work I was doing every day, whether it was coming up against my classmates who were white in this white school that I grew up in, how whiteness affected how I felt about my body and how that showed up in relationships, looking at philanthropy and how And also the idea of rest, how that came into conversation. So what I love about the book now is that it's this really wonderful braiding together of my considerations around anti-racism, my memoir, and my intention on inviting others to reimagine how they show up in the world too. I'm so looking forward to reading that. (laughs) I cannot wait. Truly. You are getting one of the first copies, I promise. Yay. (laughs) And then finally, what advice would you give to young women and especially black women who are struggling with anxiety, depression, and finding it hard to, you know, deal with every day? Yeah, I think my advice is a few things. First, it's to, especially for young women where social media is such a part of our lives, and I know it's not anything that's going to go away quickly. I think the world of social media and what you could learn from different accounts around like just reading and being curious. I invite young women to be curious about these feelings that we're having. Oftentimes we're taught to push them away 
we're taught to ignore them or we build these skills to do one of those two things. So the first is to be curious about what you're feeling and find what other people are saying about those feelings as well. Because once we know we're not alone, that often is the first wave of relief to say, okay, I'm not the only one who has felt this way. And the next is to just be in relationship with those feelings, with our body, to give yourself, as Chrissy and I mentioned, just a little bit of time each day to be in relationship with yourself. That goes such a long way in having an understanding of how we want to show up in the world day to day. And that builds into how we want to show up in the world in this lifetime. And naps. I just highly highly recommend naps to give your brain a break (laughs) during the day. If, and when you get a chance, even if it's just on the weekends, naps are such a selfish thing. (laughs) And so I'm encouraging everyone to find an opportunity to selfishly find rest. Even if it's not a sleeping nap, I often call it like a resting nap where I just lay in the bed and close my eyes. I know that I probably won't fall asleep, but I still have given my body and my mind this chance to just be quiet and be still. Absolutely beautiful. I love a good nap. You know, solves a lot. It does <laughs> so so much. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being here with me today. I truly enjoyed this conversation, and it was so great to see you. So good to see you. This was so much fun. I appreciate you inviting me on. Of course. Till next time. That's all we have time for today. I want to say thank you so much to Rachel Cargill for joining us to discuss her anti-racism and philanthropic work, as well as her personal experiences with anxiety and depression. We're here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. Make sure you subscribe to I'm Fine You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review. Tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine You, presented by Maybelline New York.